0: Today we come to the end of the series that we've been in since the beginning of January called Origins, the beginning of everything. Now, of course, there still remains a lot of beginnings in the book of beginnings, but we've examined the original creation, evidence for God and the cause of sin. It all started with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, breshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, created God. God created everything, time, space, and mass. Evidence indicates that the universe had a beginning. Evidence indicates that there was nothing, and then, bang, there was everything. That's something that evolutionary scientists and creation scientists and pastors agree on, that there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was everything. And then God took six literal days to differentiate the space and the matter, that is to make them into the things that he wanted them to be, and to establish the bodies that control times and seasons. During those six days, there were two other bara moments, or creation from nothing moments, God-only moments. The first was God created animal life, soul life, sentient life. And then the second, God created human life, life in his image, life with spirit that could commune with him. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 then God said, Let us make man or humankind in our image, according to our likeness. This is God speaking to himself. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God placed the first man and the first woman in a special place called a garden eastward in Eden, a place of perfect conditions. But in the middle of the garden, God placed a choice. God or self, life or death, good or evil, the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, the parents of all humanity chose self. They chose death. They chose the allure of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, they were separated from God by the curse of sin and put outside of that garden that God had planted, especially for them eastward in Eden. Uh, Life became difficult and toilsome. As children were born to Adam and Eve, they murdered each other. They committed bigamy and other forms of sexual deviance. The entire earth tumbled into chaos. Even the animals were affected. When the evil on earth reached the level where everything people thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil, God knew it was time to do something. It was time to destroy humanity along with all the earth. And so today we conclude the series by looking at God's destruction of the world by the Great Flood. We're entitling it The Great Flood. And also it is the origin of our current world. Because what we have today as a world or as a planet is the result of what happened in the Great Flood. So let's begin at the beginning, we're going to go back. We have observed evidence for a worldwide flood. In the movie, is Genesis history? Remember that we showed it here a couple of times. If you haven't seen that, you need to. They've added to it. They've added some stuff about the the ark uh, and the uh, the, uh, the ark encounter, the topography of the earth today, the high mountains and the deep valleys, the polar ice caps and Climate change are all results of the Great Flood. So for today, because we've seen this evidence in the past, I'm simply going to describe the flood, and then I'm going to answer these three questions. The first one is, how could you get all those animals on that size boat? And the second one is, what happened to the dinosaurs if they didn't live 65 million years ago or die off 65 million Years ago, And then thirdly, uh, what can we learn from the flood? What are the general lessons from the flood? So let's start kind of overlapping from last week, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where Scripture says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The rest of the world was falling off the edge, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was the recipient of God's grace and spared the judgment that was on the rest of the world. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. While the rest of earth's population had become corrupt and violent, Noah was unique among them. He was perfect in his generations. That is, he lived right, and he alone was blameless or morally upright among all the people of the earth. And this phrase may also mean that Noah had an unbroken descent uh, from Seth, Adam through Seth and down to his time. He walked with God. That is said only in all scripture of Enoch before his time. And Enoch all of a sudden wasn't there any longer because God took him off the planet. But Noah did the same thing and God left him here to preach righteousness and go through one of the most monumental events that ever occurred on the planet. Verse 10, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah must have had a great influence over these three young men because they were born and they lived in the worst of times, and yet they evidently helped dad build the ark, and we know for sure they got on board that ark when nobody else would at the end of the time of preaching and building. Verse 11, the earth was also, uh, earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, corruption, and violence. Verse 12, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The word corrupt is a verb. It means to decay or to ruin or to destroy. It's a very powerful Hebrew word that indicates the degradation of the planet. When society turns its back on God, the results are decay rather than improvement and violence rather than peace, and and we see that happening today. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, through these people, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The end of all flesh has come before me. That phrase means I've determined to make an end to the life that breathes air on this planet. The flesh which God speaks of here is described, and I'm not going to put this on the screen, but Genesis 7:21 says, and all flesh died, this was during the flood, that moved on the earth, everything that walked around on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. Uh, all these were saved on the ark, but everything that was left on the planet died. That praise with the earth at the very end means that God would destroy the earth, the lost world, along with the life on the planet. Before God told Noah how he was going to do that, he said this, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. The the, the word ark simply means a box or a chest. But this particular word is only used of one other vehicle, in the entire Bible one other time. It was in that basket made of reeds that baby Moses floated into the Nile River in. And so maybe the box uh, carries with it the idea of boxes that will float on water. The rooms that are spoken of here, uh, are trans- this word is translated nest, every other place in the Old Testament. So these rooms were apparently individually designed for animals specifically to meet their needs, who would rest in the ark for the duration of the flood. Verse 15, this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. How long is a cubit, anyway? Well, it was, in the ancient world, the distance between the tip of a man's finger and his elbow. Gene measured that on me. I forgot what we measured last night. But anyway, I said, I want to know what my cubit is. And, and so we measured it. That would vary, right? If you have big men or you have small men, that would vary. Known ancient cubits vary from 17 and half inches uh, to 20.6 inches. The common ancient cubit, ancient short cubit, was 18 inches. The sacred cubit in Scripture was 20.4 inches. Using the 18 inch cubit, the ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The ark that has been made at Ark Encounter, you know, the park in Kentucky, uses the 20.4 inch cubit. It is 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. So it can vary inside, but a pretty good sized boat. Verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit above. That's the hardest thing to understand of all of it. And set a door, the door in the side of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything That is on the earth shall die. That word floodwaters is literally a flood of waters. And the word for flood there is used only in scripture to describe this particular flood. Never used. Other uh, times the word flood is used, different word. Only to describe this particular flood. When the great flood is described in the New Testament, by the way, the Greek word is kataklismos. Or cataclysm, you know, just big disaster. Verse 18, God says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your son's wives with you. This is the first use of the word covenant in Scripture, and it refers to an unconditional covenant between God and Noah and every living thing on the earth that God would never again destroy the earth by flood, and of course, God's bow or the rainbow in the sky is a remembrance of that covenant. God continues, verse 19, And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Verse 20, Of the birds after their kind. I just underlined that word because kind is important, like, kind of like species would be in our world today. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep alive. And so all the animals in pairs, male and female, were to be brought on board. Genesis chapter 7 tells us that there were seven of each clean animal, that is, animals that could be used for sacrifice. We assume that's why they had to have seven instead of just two of those. Verse 21, And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, And you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. That is, for the animals on board the ark. Verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah did everything exactly the way God told him to do it. You know how rare that is? (laughs) Hardly ever happens. He had to walk with God in order for that to happen. That was rare. But he did everything exactly the way God told him to do it. We would be so much better off if we could do everything exactly the way God tells us. Well, what we're going to look at to start with, I said we just kind of described the flood. So we're going to look at this flood of waters, this mabul mayim. this, This term that's used only to describe this flood which was different from every other flood that has ever occurred on the face of the planet. A few verses About the great flood. We don't have time to read it all. It's fascinating, but we'll just read these verses Genesis chapter 7, verse 7. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood or to avoid the flood. Verse 8 of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Verse 9 two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female as God had commanded Noah. Let me just stop there and say uh, conditions were the same all around the world. You know, There weren't polarized caps in hot places and cool places and things of that nature. So animals were probably the same around the world, too. Therefore, they were all local, and God caused them to migrate to Noah. Verse 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth, God gave Noah seven days advance notice of when the flood was going to begin. And when God gave Noah the advance notice, they started boarding the ark. The sun was probably still shining brightly when God said, all aboard. It was by faith that they they did that. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, two things happened. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. We need to remember those two things. I'll describe them in a minute. A worldwide rain of 40 days would not be possible under our present atmospheric conditions. There's just not enough water up there and you couldn't get it coming up and going down fast enough. These verses give two sources for the flood waters. The fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Now I want you to remember this. We're going to go back and Read in Genesis chapter 1, the original creation was covered with water. The Spirit of God hovered on the face of the deep to start with. Then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. Verse 7, so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. And God called, verse 8 says, God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. So in dealing with this planet, one of the first things that God did is that he took some of the water off that planet and lifted it up above the atmosphere of the earth. And it surrounded the entire earth. It was like a a filter uh, created a greenhouse effect on the planet. So, from the water that was above and from the waters that were on earth came the waters of the flood. That first phrase says all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Before the flood, there were rivers but no rain. Figure that. Wouldn't work on our planet today. Uh, What happens is that the water gets evaporated out of the ocean, comes over the land, precipitation falls. Some of it's liquid. And some of it is snow. Some of it turns to ice, but it runs into the rivers and the rivers run back to the ocean. Now, there's some springs, of course, but for the most part, that's the way the rivers are fed. But if there is no rain and there was no rain before the flood, what happens? Well, evidently, they were underground rivers or sources of water that fed the rivers of that day. Somehow, All these subterranean waters were brought to the surface. One of the few things in the Noah movie uh, that seemed kind of accurate to me is that uh, as they were boarding the ark and the rain was falling, if you saw that movie, columns of water began shooting up out of the ground. I don't know if that's the way it happened or not, but somehow that did happen because uh, because Scripture says here all the fountains of the great deep, were broken up. So all this subterranean water came to the surface. And it also says the windows of heaven were open. This great canopy of water vapor that was out there beyond the atmosphere or of ice crystals came back down to the planet. That's the reason that you could have 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Verse 12 says, and the rain was on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, eight people. They, verse 14 says, and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird or everything with wings of every sort. I mentioned before the word kind is important. It's like a species. It indicates not every Breed of dog that existed went on board the ark, but just a pair of canines is all that it took. Not every breed of canine, uh, uh, feline or of cat had to go on board; just one breed of canine or cat, which in which God had placed uh, the ability to create other sorts of cats. Verse fifteen: They went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life, verse 16. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. When God shuts the door, you're secure. You don't have to worry about it anymore. They got in the ark. Noah didn't have to shut the door himself. God shut them in. Now there is ample geological evidence for the great worldwide flood of water. Stratified sedimentary rock abounds all over the earth. All the fossil bearing sedimentary rock could have been formed during the 221 days that the flood receded off the planet. If you see the Is Genesis History movie, it gives a great description of the whole process that took place. The, the great deserts of the world and so forth held water for a while before they finally drained out and made things like the Grand Canyon. The existence of the geological structures on our planet today, like the really high mountains and the great canyons, indicate a great catastrophe. The great flood began in the 600th year, second month, 17th day of Noah's life. God told Noah and the animals to leave the ark in Noah's 601st year, second month, 27th day. When Noah left the ark after a year and 10 or 11 days, 370 or 71 days, assuming a 30-day month, What he found was a very different world, the world that we live in today. The oceans were more extensive since there was more water on the earth, and then there was less land, and more of the land was uninhabitable because things like polar ice caps uh, formed. Removal of the water uh, canopy above the atmosphere allowed temperature extremes. That's the reason you could get the polar uh, ice caps, and you get uh, uh, harmful radiation bombarding us from outer space. But God was with them. He promised never to destroy the planet again by water. And, of course, if God's with you, it doesn't make any difference what the conditions around you might be. So let's look at those three questions that I mentioned to you earlier. The first one is this. How could you get all those animals on that size boat? Gee, that doesn't seem possible, right? So let's talk about the boat, the ark to start with. Here's a, here's a picture, by the way, of... Uh, this is the uh, uh, ark encounter, uh, people lining up beside the boat, kind of a picture of the, of the boat from a distance. Based on which cubit you use, the ark could have ranged in, in size from a small size of 438 feet by 72.9 feet by 43.8 feet to a large, which this is, 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet tall. Using the standard 18-inch cubit, which is most people what most people do for discussion, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, made of hardwood, sealed with an unknown substance called pitch. Had some kind of a window or opening around the top, uh, below the roof, a door in the side, Three levels or decks with individual stalls or nests designed for each particular animal that came on board. Now, a box, just a rectangular box, not a fancy-looking thing like that that looks like a ship, but just a rectangular box, no round corners or anything, would be slow in the water but extremely stable and able to withstand great waves that would hit it almost to a 90-degree level. It would come right back down uh, on its bottom Again, it could carry one third more cargo than a modern ship of comparable size. Using that minimal size, you know, of the 17 and a half inch cubic, the volume of the ark would have been about 1,400,000 cubic feet, which is equal to 522 standard livestock boxcars. Since you can put about 240 sheep in a standard boxcar, that leaves room for about 125,280 sheep in the smallest that the ark could possibly. Uh, have been. If you go with the standard uh, uh, cubit, you could get 135 sheep on board. If you go with this one, you could get almost 200,000 sheep on board a boat of that size. Let's talk about the animals, not insects. Things that kind of fit in everywhere. You can't get rid of those things regardless of what you do, so they were just kind of coming on board. But there are less than 18,000 today on this planet, less than 18,000 species of mammals, birds reptiles and amphibians double that for the known extinct land animals and say there were about 36,000 species of animals in Noah's day take two of each kind that would be 72,000 animals add 3,000 for the extra of the clean animals and you get about 75,000 animals plus bugs on board the ark the average size of land animals is less than the size of a sheep so even at at its minimal size the ark could have housed 75,000 animals and still been at 60 percent capacity so that humans and food could take up the rest of the ark now it could have been a lot bigger than that could have been this big and then would have had a lot more room for moving around I just present those things to show you that it could be done, and it could be done easily, but one thing we can be assured of is that God designed this thing to be just the right size for all the animals and all the humans and all the food to get on board. And by the way, all the animals, especially the larger animals, would probably have been represented by younger, smaller individuals. You don't want to put the two biggest elephants on the planet on this, right? You get two young youngsters, a man, a male, and a female, uh, and bears and lions. You know, big, and maybe it was a smaller feline anyway. Since many animals have the ability to hibernate, you know, they go into that dormant state for a period of time. Uh, a lot of them, maybe all of them, had that ability. Maybe they slept through most of the storm. Uh, there's a similar dormant state. For extreme heat situations, that's called estivation, just like hibernation. They do the same thing: go into a, a semi-dormant state. In these semi-dormant states, the animal may have eaten little or nothing, may they may have excreted little or nothing during this particular time, leaving all the food so they have a good meal when they left the ark. Plenty of food to eat while they uh, re re-peopled the planet. So, the seventy-five thousand or so land animals could have easily fit on an ark the size described in the book of Genesis. Now, the writer of Genesis does not give us all the plans of the ark, just enough to show us that it was real, that it would work, and it was far different. You read about the the boats in pagan mythology, ridiculous, built like cubes, things that would tumble through the water. This thing was built so that it would be extremely stable, approximately the dimensions of a modern ship, even square, even rectangular, it would have it would have been a great place to be through this flood. How could you get all those animals on that size boat? God knew how to do it. It would have worked out easily. Second question is this. What happened to the dinosaurs? I like dinosaurs, don't you? Dinosaurs are exciting. Dinosaurs... Elicited a lot of interest. Here's a picture of Sue in the Field Museum in Chicago. I've been there. I've seen this. Sue is a Tyrannosaurus, right? Tyrannosaurus rex. Uh, she's named Sue. By the, I don't know if they know if she's male or female. Maybe they do. But, but the woman who discovered her was named Sue Hendrickson, and so that's the reason that she's named Sue. Uh, she was purchased by the Field Museum in 1997, been on display since the year 2000. Sue is 42 feet long, 12 feet high at the hips. Uh, It seems that dinosaurs, as far as we can tell, were either really big or kind of small. The average size of a dinosaur estimated about the size of an American bison, about 1,350 to 1,400 pounds. The first modern knowledge of dinosaurs, that is the first time in modern history that a dinosaur bone had been unearthed, was in the 1820s, when a guy by the name of Gideon Mantell, was an English optatrician, geologist and paleontologist, found some unusual teeth and bones in a quarry that turned out to be iguanodon. By 1841, about nine types of these different reptiles had been uncovered including two called Megalosaurus and the Iguanodon. A famous British scientist, Dr. Richard Owen, biologist, paleontologist, and so forth, coined the name Dinosauria, meaning terrible lizard, because that's what he thought about when he saw these bones of these giant reptiles. Now, other than the huge size of some dinosaurs... The major feature that differentiates them from other reptiles, we have a lot of reptiles around, right? Iguanas and and, uh, alligators and crocodiles and the lizards that are around the house and so forth. Uh, But the, the major feature that really distinguishes dinosaurs from other reptiles, say like crocodiles, is the position of their limbs, of their feet, arms, if you want to call that in some of them. Most other reptiles have limbs in a sprawling position, kind of like crocodiles. You know, they, they waddle along like this. But dinosaurs would move more like, say, a cow with their, in a more upright position with their feet under them. And that kind of differentiates them between other reptiles. Evolutionary scientists believe that dinosaurs ruled the earth for about 140 million years and died out about 65 million years ago. Now, I think the evidence claimed by evolutionary scientists involves evolutionary prejudice. For instance, there's no proof that the world and its fossil layers are millions and millions of years old. Dinosaurs supposedly evolved from amphibians, yet there's no fossils that show transitional forms not for dinosaurs, not for anything else. Creation scientists examined the same evidence get much different results, and results, by the way, that fit the evidence better. So, if dinosaurs did not live millions and millions of years ago, and if they did not evolve from amphibians, where did they come from, and where did they go? Well, on day six of creation, Genesis chapter 1, just before God created the first man and the first woman, Genesis 1:24 then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and the beast of the field, each according to his kind, and it was so, verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. As with all other creatures, God created dinosaurs, and he created them on the sixth day. Originally, there was no death. Before sin, there was no death on this planet. So in this original creation, and until Adam and Eve decided to eat that piece of fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, originally, on this perfect earth, there was no death. And all of God's creatures were vegetarians, humans and animals alike. Genesis 1, verse 29 says, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. And, verse 30, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there's life, I've given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so evening and morning were the sixth day. When did people start eating meat? Well, after sin, God allowed it after the flood. People probably were eating meat before that time. Why do dinosaurs have those great big teeth that are meant for tearing things apart? Well, after sin, they probably evolved those things. You know, within species, there's evolution. They they evolved and began eating other things. Dinosaurs may be mentioned in the Bible. There is evidence of dinosaurs on the planet since the time of the flood. When God was talking with Job, he said this in Job chapter 40, verse 15. Look now at the behemoth. We don't know what that is, but it's big, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox, so we're talking about a land animal. See now, verse 16, his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. Verse 17, he moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly I underlined uh, or highlighted his tail, moves his tail like a cedar because that's an important feature. Verse 18, his bones are beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. Verse 19, he is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. The, The New Living Translation translates that this way, by the way. It is a prime example of God's handiwork. As he is the first of the ways of God. He's a prime example of God's handiwork, and only his creator can threaten him. Only his creator can do anything with him because he is big and he is powerful. Some Bible commentaries say that this may have been an elephant or a hippopotamus, but the description actually fits that of a dinosaur like Brachiosaurus. They've got a little picture here. Elephants and hippopotami do not have tails like cedar trees. They have little teeny tiny tails. And, And this had a tail like a cedar tree. God also speaks with Job about a sea monster called Leviathan. Job 41, 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? This is way too big to catch. Or snare his tongue with a line? which you lower. Uh, also in Scripture, the word dragon is used a lot. The Hebrew word tanin is used many times in the Old Testament and so often translated dragon or sea monster. It's defined as a marine or land monster, sea serpent or jackal, dragon, sea monster, serpent, or whale. So it's possible that what the Bible is describing are some of these giant beasts of the past. In addition, there are numerous old history books in libraries around the world that have detailed records of dragons and their encounters with people, details of how things went. Now, some of these dragons fit the description of dinosaurs, including Sue, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Of course, these records are dismissed as myth, but they're dismissed as myth because of the belief that dinosaurs and humans haven't been on the earth together and that dinosaurs have been gone for 65 million years. But what if they hadn't been gone been gone that long? Wouldn't there be uh, a, a collective memory of these particular things? Historical evidence is real. Regardless of how accurate or inaccurate, it's real. Dragons seem to have been real beasts, much like our modern reconstruction of dinosaurs. Their existence has been recorded by a lot of different people, some of them just a few hundred years ago. So there's evidence that dinosaurs have been on the planet since the time of the flood. So what happened to these dinosaurs? What happened to them? Well, evolutionary scientists have a myriad of possible explanations from meteorites to mass suicide to fungi to all sorts of things that happen. But in his 1979 book called a, Look, uh, a New Look at the Dinosaurs, Alan Churig made this statement. He says, now comes the important question. What caused all these extinctions at one particular point in time approximately 65 million years ago. Why did most of the dinosaurs seem to disappear about 65 million years ago? Dozens of reasons have been suggested, some serious and sensible, others quite crazy, and yet others merely a joke. Every year, people come up with new theories on this thorny problem, what happened to the dinosaurs. The trouble is that if we are to find just one reason to account for them all, It would have to explain the death, all at the same time, of animals living on the land and of animals living in the sea. But in both cases, only some of those animals. For many of the land dwellers and many of the sea dwellers went on to live quite happily in the following period. So what are we going to do? How are we going to explain one thing, cause most of them to die, but some of them continue to live? Alas, No such one explanation exists. Ah, but there is one explanation that perfectly explains what happened. At the time of the flood, many sea creatures died. The upheaval of the planet must have been terrible, but many survived. So many of these great sea creatures would have been killed off, but some survived. In addition, all of the land creatures outside the ark Died, But the representatives taking on board the ark of all kinds lived in the new world after the flood, including dinosaurs. There's no reason to believe that that, that, uh, Noah didn't have dinosaurs on board the ark. Not the biggest Tyrannosaurus rex on the planet, but maybe the smallest. Uh, Those land animals, including dinosaurs, found the new world to be much different than the one before the flood, due to several factors. For instance, there was a greater competition for food. Before the flood, you were in this greenhouse effect. You had more land uh, and, and all sorts of vegetation, and that's what they ate, you know, was vegetation. All sorts of vegetation, just available. You didn't have to work hard to get it. But after the flood, there was greater competition and other kinds of catastrophes. After the flood, Man began killing animals for food, and maybe for fun. And then there, was, there is the destruction of habitats, which was very real, that their habitat was destroyed during the flood. It took a while to came back afterward. Many species of animals eventually died out. We know what extinction is about. We know what, uh, what endangered species are on our planet today. The group of animals we now call dinosaurs just happen to die out. Some individuals lived maybe until just a few hundred years ago. In fact, the fact is that quite a number of animals become extinct every year on our planet. And if, if the government discovers or environmentalists discover some little animal or some big animal that's near extinction, you're not gonna mess up their habitation extinction seems to be the rule and not the exception in earth history, not the formation of new types of animals as you would expect from evolution, but the extinction of animals that are already around. So what happened to the dinosaurs? God created them. They thrived on old earth. Most of them died during the flood as most other animals died during the flood. Some survived in the sea and on the ark. But after the flood conditions changed, and those changes were not conducive to these larger animals to live, what can we learn from the flood? Last question. What can we learn from the flood? This is the short one here. The flood answers this question. Can we get away with pursuing life immorally and enjoying the pleasures of this world with reckless abandon? Can we just do whatever we feel like doing? And get away with it. Can we just go against God? Uh, Can we violate all of God's principles? Can we live in whatever moral state we feel like living? And it'd be okay. The answer is no. God's judgment makes that very clear. God's judgment comes on everyone and everything that violates his commands. God cares about what happens on this planet. And God will do something about it. There's always a price to pay in the here and now. And in the future and in eternity, there is a price to pay. The flood shows the lengths that God is willing to go to bring about holiness and rest on this planet. What a terrible thing. You know, we don't read anything in scripture about the terror on the planet after the door shut. And the rain started, and the fountains of the deep broke up. But everybody who had heard Noah preach knew that they'd made a mistake by not getting on that ship. What terror there must have been. What length God went to. How horrible that must have been. But those of us who serve and follow him can be encouraged by the fact that God does judge evil and rewards good, that Jesus died for all people who call on him. We can take encouragement in that. God's plan is for good to triumph over evil. There's only one other event that's ever taken place on this planet that shows that holiness among people is the object for which God will sacrifice whatever it takes. We're going to celebrate that event here and around the world in just about three weeks. We call that event Easter. But it is the sacrifice of God's only Son, Jesus Christ, for the sins of the world. The reason we come together on Sunday morning is we remember the resurrected Christ. But just think what God is willing to do, what God is willing to give up, what God is willing to sacrifice just so you and I can be holy in his sight, just so you and I can have the peace of knowing that God is in control, so that you and I can live eternally with him. He was willing to sacrifice himself, his only begotten son, on the cross for us. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, maybe the only other event in history that even comes close to the importance of the event we've read about today. I hope you learned some things from and about the flood, and I hope that you've trusted Christ as your personal savior. If you haven't, as he draws you, trust in him, don't push him away. Let's pray together. Father, I know you're here today. I know that you're in control. I know you're in control of the flood situation. I don't understand everything No one does, except you. But I ask for your wisdom, and I ask for your grace, and I ask for your mercy, and I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray if there's a person here that you're drawing to you this morning, that person would trust in you. If there's somebody who needs to be baptized, I pray that they would see the importance of that, somebody that needs to fellowship with the church here, that they would see the need for that. In Jesus' name.